When was the last time you thought about your insurance coverage? For me, it is not very often, but I know for a fact that you sleep soundly at night knowing that you have it. That means it's important, and that means you need to understand what it is that you have. It means you need to understand where your liability is, and you need someone that you can trust to have that conversation with. Several years ago, I met Mike Hyam at an AWT convention of McGowan Insurance Group. And at the time, I had our insurance through a local broker who is an extremely nice guy, and we had had our auto policies with him for years. And when I started my company, I naturally called him and he got us coverage. The thing is, he did not understand the water treatment industry. So he was giving us the best coverage he knew to get us without understanding the industry. I had a conversation with Mike at that convention and he asked some very good questions, questions that I didn't have the answers to. And I'm sure glad he asked those questions because folks, I did not know to ask them, but as soon as he asked them, I knew that I did not have all the coverages that I need. Think of all the coverages out there. Property, general liability, professional liability, workers' compensation, employee practices liability. Folks, there's even insurance for cyber liability. And I have to tell you, I did not know to ask about that one, but Mike did because this is what he does. He serves the water treatment industry and he knows that there is a potential liability because of the remote access that we do with our controllers. Not only did he get me the right coverage with the right company, he was able to give me advice on making sure that we had proper policies in effect to make sure that we were protecting ourselves and our customers. A lot of insurers can only write through one insurance carrier. McGowan Insurance Group represents dozens of carriers like Donegal Insurance. And when we go to renew, I can't tell you how awesome it is that they are able to look at multiple suppliers to make sure that we're getting the best coverage, but we're also getting the best value. I know without a doubt, because McGowan Insurance Group understands the water treatment industry, that we are getting that each and every time we renew with them. They do liability, benefits, bonds. They are a full service agency. Give the fine folks at McGowan Insurance Group a call today and tell them that Trace sent you or visit them on the web at mcgowaninsgrp.com. Welcome to Scaling Up H2O, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. I'm Trace Blackmore, the host of Scaling Up H2O. I'm also very pleased to say that I am the recipient of the Water Technologist of the Year Award by the Association of Water Technologies. I have to say that's hard for me to say. I never want that to come off as bragging, but I really feel like this is our award because of all the things we do within the Scaling Up Nation. So that's why I am so proud of that. And I want to share that with you. You know, I'm still getting comments over the work that my team did during Industrial Water Week. So many people have commented on trying that water cake. Didn't even know that that recipe was out there. So many people loved Detective H2O and Dr. H2O, and so many comments about what our family members actually think we do as water treaters. It was a lot of fun to put all those shows together. I am certain that that was our best celebration of Industrial Water Week ever, but it does beg the question, what are we going to do next year? And I'm going to say this year is going to be very hard to top, but I thought the same thing last year too. 
I'm going to ask for you to help me with that. What are some ideas that you have so we can start planning for that for the next Industrial Water Week? By the way, that's going to be October 4th through 8th in October next year, 2021. By the way, that'll be my 24th wedding anniversary that Monday, October 4th. So what do you think we should do next year to top this great batch of shows that we just delivered this Industrial Water Week? I'd love to hear your ideas. And I can't believe that we're in the middle of October already. October is almost over. It seemed like we were all waiting for Industrial Water Week, and now all of a sudden that came and went, and pretty soon Halloween will be there. 2020 is almost over, and quite frankly, I think we're probably all very thankful 2020 is almost over. But I know that you have accomplished a lot this year, despite all the challenges that 2020 has brought. So here's what I want to ask everybody in the Scaling Up Nation to do. I want you to take an evaluation over how 2020 was going. And I know you've got tremendous accomplishments this year. I want you to celebrate that. I then want you to look at this last quarter and say, what do I need to do to achieve my highest priorities during this last quarter, coming off the accomplishments that you just looked at for 2020? I think that is a way to supercharge how quarter four can go, and it also gets you ready to plan for 2021. Now, if you're a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind, you know that we go into high gear after the beginning of fourth quarter because we want to make sure that we are properly planning for the following year. Well, this year, the Rising Tide Mastermind is doing something a little bit different. We're not looking at next year. We're looking three years out. And we are making statements about what we have accomplished over the last three years when we are in 2023. Now, we learned last week with Chris McChesney of Franklin Covey Company that when you think in the positive, when you tell your brain things that you have already done as if you've already accomplished them, the brain just starts working in a way that helps you complete that. Well, that's what we're doing in the Rising Tide Mastermind. We're holding each other accountable to that, and we're helping each other get there. And we're going to celebrate those wins when we all cross that finish line. But that doesn't mean that even though you're not a member of the Rising Tide Mastermind, you can't use that same line of thinking to do the same goals yourself. So please play along with the Rising Tide Mastermind. Where are you going to be in three years? Write it in a statement like you have already accomplished it, and then figure out each and every quarter, you'll have 12 quarters to get there, 12 weeks in every quarter, what do you need to accomplish so in those three years, it will get done. I tell you, when you start doing that, when you start planning based on quarters, start planning based on weeks, and you can check things off, you can see how you're keeping score. That is how things get completed. Let me switch gears just a bit. Have you ever experienced or know someone that was cyber attacked? Well, I have. It was a good friend of mine and all of his data was being held hostage for a ransom because somebody opened an email that they shouldn't have opened. Now, I saw this email. There is no way that this looked legitimate. It was just somebody clicking that wasn't paying attention. And imagine that. Imagine if all your data was locked up and you did not have access it. Imagine if you were responsible for a customer experiencing that. Imagine if your kids opened something at home and now all of your passwords are suddenly on the dark web. Have I scared you enough yet? After all, it's close to Halloween. 
Well, today my guest is Keon Williams of Cyber Leadership and Strategy Solutions. He's going to talk about that these things really do happen. But more than that, he's going to give us some solutions on what we should be doing, how we should be educating ourselves, how we should be training people in our company, people at home, so we can mitigate the risk against cyber attack. I know you are going to learn something today on this episode that you are going to immediately do before you go to bed tonight. So please enjoy my interview with Keon Williams. Scaling Up Nation, as you know, technology makes our life so much easier, but there are also certain things that come with that technology. And of course, that's people trying to do harm using our technology against us. So our lab partner today is Keon Williams, and he is an expert when it comes to cybersecurity. Keon, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we are so glad that you are here because there are so many misunderstandings out there of how to keep our companies safe, how to keep ourselves safe when we are using these wonderful devices that save so much time and make information so much easier to access. But we also know on the back end, people are trying to use it against us. They're trying to get information. They're trying to break into areas. And when it comes to most of our audience, we're really good water treaters, but we do not know what to do when it comes to protecting ourselves. So I'm hoping through our conversation today, you and I can help many people out there in the Scaling Up Nation with what to do about that. So Keon, if you don't mind, would you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Sure. The short version of a long story is that my professional career started out in the military. So I was a chemical weapons specialist in the U.S. Army for eight years, which allows me to understand some of the parallels between water treatment professionals and uh, cybersecurity just because of my interaction with chemicals and green gas that would melt your skin off. Um, for the last 20 years or so, I've been working in cybersecurity. So I started out at the bottom over time, I worked my way up to the top, and I have a pretty broad understanding of how businesses of all types use technology to advance their business objectives. For the past eight or 10 years, I've been focused exclusively on security leadership. So I've been a security executive. I've taught security executives how to do their jobs. And a significant part of my time now involves just spreading the gospel of cybersecurity. And so from a public peak from a public speaking perspective, I have a great opportunity to speak to all types of industries, all types of organizations, and just help educate people about good practices, good procedures, things that are going to protect their organization from harm related to some of the cybersecurity threats that are out there. Well, as I said at the top of the show, I know we are going to educate a lot of people today. I'm kind of curious, what kind of similarities and differences are there in working with green gas that will melt your skin off and cybersecurity? Because I'm sure they're out there. Well, you know, it all comes down to awareness. If you think about in a military situation, uh, one of the great things that the Chemical Corps does is protect people and provide early warning that there's some kind of chemical or biological attack. And so we used to have these great devices that you would put at a distance, and based on the wind speed and atmospheric conditions, that would determine where you put the alarm. But the alarm was really an early warning system. When you hear the alarm, everybody knew the movements to execute the alert to give, and it triggered you know, the entire force to put on their chemical masks. And then depending on the type of agent that we were dealing with, you might put on your full chemical protective gear. If you apply that same approach to security, ideally you want to have early warning systems that trigger some kind of alert when there is a security incident or some type of attack. And then based on the scope of the attack, people are going to jump into action to contain the threat, to provide remediation, and to restore operations as quickly as possible. So the work that I did in the military actually has a very close parallel to the profession that I've selected 
post-military and continue to educate people about? Well, I'm sure we are going to dive into many of the things that you just mentioned there. I would like to address, before we start having the conversation, I'm sure there are people out there today, there are many that own businesses that are listening to us in this country and in other countries, and and they get it. They understand, hey, I need to understand this so I can protect not only myself, but also my customers and the business. But there are some other people out there that are servicing accounts and, you know, they probably use a smartphone, things like that, but maybe they don't have direct access into databases and servers. Why should they pay close attention to today's conversation? You know, cybersecurity is for everybody. Um, You know, if, if we take it all the way down to the bottom of the spectrum, you know, cybersecurity should be taught to elementary school children who are starting to use tablets because the tablet then becomes the gateway into the home environment. If people are working from home, now you're exposing your corporate computing resources to compromise because your child clicked on a link that was on a tablet and they were just playing video games and it messes up the entire ecosystem. And the idea of an ecosystem is really what we're talking about. And so for people who provide professional services, for people who are employees, all of the devices that are in their personal ecosystems are ultimately going to affect the organization, depending on how well or how poorly you protect those devices, keep them clean, keep them sanitary. And, you know, the idea about hygiene and sanitation is very relevant to water treatment professionals. So I think, again, it's a great parallel where we're thinking about keeping our devices clean and sanitary and safe from harm because any negative agent, you know, any pollution that we introduce into the environment is going to affect everything. Something I find very interesting, and you and I were having this conversation when we met originally, was that Target with they had their hack a couple of years back that really devastated a, a lot of things in that company. That hack was achieved by the hackers finding a backdoor from the HVAC contractor that their store was using. So I think that that's very similar to how we control our products using controllers and using internet to control our programs. So you have more knowledge than I do about that particular attack. Do you mind sharing with the Scaling Up Nation a little bit of the particulars around the target attack? Sure. Well, at a high level, what what I'd like to do is avoid picking on target because people have been um, attacking them and using them as the use case for years. But target is actually one of many companies that has had some kind of data breach or security incident because they just didn't do a great job of vendor risk management. And so if you look at NIST, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, actually has some great guidance that talks about the cybersecurity supply chain risk management. If you Google C-SCRM, it'll take you to some great resources. And I think if we move away from Target as a specific case and think a little more broadly, because not every organization is going to have an HVAC vendor that has a portal where access control could introduce some things, your supply chain plays a huge part in the success or lack thereof related to your security program. You know, when you think about your supply chain for a water treatment facility or you think about your supply chain just for a regular business, every third party that exists outside your organization that has to have access to your facility, whether it's remote access through a VPN, whether they're using remote access to provide updates and patches to your industrial control systems, whether people are just walking into the facility with a laptop because they're going to provide a patch or have some other interaction, all of those outsiders who are coming into your organization potentially introduce some level of risk. And the way that you consider, how am I going to evaluate that risk, how am I going to understand it, what am I going to allow or not allow is going to play a huge part in the long-term success of a lot of organizations. What I think would be a very interesting case study within the context of this conversation is if you look at the um, nuclear plants in the Middle East where there was a large attack that was facilitated against them, that was actually a closed system that didn't have internet access. 
And the thing that was the root of that security incident was not that a third party did some kind of internet-based attack, but it was that a user took a USB drive into the facility. And now we've broken the boundary, so to speak, because a trusted insider brought an untrusted device, plugged it into the environment, and that's how the attack was spread. And so it causes you to consider, regardless of the organization, what policies and procedures and protocols do we have in place that are going to help us consider all of the attack vectors that we're facing, but also how do we educate our employees? You know, people do security awareness training, and the entire conversation focuses on phishing, but you don't always think about, you know, maybe we're not receiving emails, you know, maybe most of our users aren't even touching the computer, but what happens when a user sees a USB drive, they stick it into a computer and see what's on it and what's on it secretly installs some kind of malicious software that allows an attacker to gain access or shut down the SCADA systems. That could be a problem that's really preventable simply by providing education, making sure that people are aware that those types of threats exist. Well, you mentioned a lot of stuff there, so I want to try to unpack that a little bit or ask you to unpack it. So what kind of procedures could we have in place? Because I'm just like the guy that you described. If I see a jump drive that's sitting on my desk, the first thing I do is I stick it in my computer to see what's on it. And that might have been set there for exactly what you said, for somebody to infiltrate the security that we do have. So what does a policy look like when we're looking at USB drives? If you look at USB drives specifically, um, one thing that we did when I was at the Centers for Disease Control that worked out really well is we had a trusted device policy. You know, there were specific USB drives that we were allowed to plug into our computers. The USB drive had the fingerprint reader. It had a specific design. It had um, branding that everybody recognized. And then the USB drive required you know, advanced registration with a central authority so that we could do virus scanning on the devices. So that even if I took that USB drive and plugged it into a computer somewhere else, before I plugged it back in the corporate computer, there was a scan that was done to make sure that there was no malicious software on there. Um, Companies could purchase those. Um, You know, it's worth the investment. If you think about Atlanta, and Atlanta had a ransomware attack, and there were multi-millions of dollars that were spent for remediation, the cost of secure USB drives is ultimately going to be much lower than the impact of having a ransomware attack or a data breach or some other compromise that shuts down your SCADA systems. Well, Atlanta would probably be able to afford, I would say, more than what most of our listeners would be able to pay out for something like you described. So does that mean it's out of reach for the rest of us? Well, prevention is the best medicine. You know, if I put my public health hat on, there are a lot of things that the CDC advocates for to prevent things from happening instead of the amount of time that you would spend on remediation. Um, You know, thinking about the audience and them being water treatment professionals, the same thing applies. I would rather prevent the distribution of disease because we are treating the water and making it safe than to drink uh, some water that is not really very attractive. And then I have to suffer the aftermath of infectious diseases or other things simply because we didn't take the right approach to make sure that the environment was clean, or in this case with the water example, make sure that the water was clean, was potable, and was safe for consumption. You know, it's the same idea in both perspectives. We're thinking about what is the right thing to do to protect the consumers of our product. And in the water treatment case, we're treating water. In my case, from a security perspective, we're making sure that the systems that are available to support operations are clean, that they are safe, and that they are performing as intended simply by taking some preventive measures. If we were to attempt to write a standard operating procedure on bringing a foreign device like a USB drive into uh, a company network, what are some of the things that we should include in that? Um, If we start simply. And so, you know, my simple approach is let's not spend a million dollars when five dollars will do. I like that approach. <laughs> the uh, the most reasonable thing that you could do is have a designated computer and say, if you were not absolutely sure about what's on this device, we will use the computer 
to look at the device, look at the files that are on the device, and make sure that it's not going to bring any harm to the organization. Now, there are vendors that do this. You know, they build special computer systems, but at a very simple level, it's really just a matter of taking a computer that you already own. You know, maybe it's an older computer, maybe you've done a technology refresh, and you have some computers that are sitting around in a closet. You know, having that designated machine and then having a procedure that says, if you are not absolutely sure, plug into the machine, and then the machine will have the capability to scan the device, identify what's on it, identify, you know, what uh, routines are executed when you plug that USB device in. It's now going to give you a central repository to interrogate, scan, and make sure that it's safe before you start plugging it into the real corporate computers in the environment. And it doesn't take a lot of effort or a lot of financial resources to set that up. Now, if you're in a larger organization and you want to take it to the next level, again, there are vendors that will do that. Um, Some of my friends work in oil and gas or in large manufacturing facilities. And so there are vendors that tailor solutions for that because in their context, you might have 65,000 plant employees who don't normally use a computer. But if they come across a device or they need to use a computer, there is still a solution in place to make sure that those infrequent computer users still understand the procedure and their infrequent use doesn't cause a major disruption to operations. Another topic you mentioned earlier was phishing. And I was just on vacation and one of my trusted employees received an email that looked like it was from me stating that I was away and I needed him to transfer funds. Luckily, we had training on this and we talked about this and he didn't, the email was close enough that if you weren't looking, you would think it was mine, but in further investigation, you could see that something was off about it. So nothing happened with that, but I know that they would not do things like that if they weren't successful. So can we take a moment and talk about One, what really phishing emails are and how we can protect ourselves against those. Sure. If if we go back to the beginning, phishing is just another permutation of spam. And so spam, historically, was just unsolicited email. That's why you ended up with the Can Spam Act. And, you know, it was meant to provide some kind of regulatory penalty for sending massive amounts of unsolicited emails to people. And over time, what people have figured out is that if I target an organization or I just cast a wide net and send billions of messages to people that has a link that's going to produce some kind of negative outcome or an opening into the organization, that even one or 2% of a billion is still a lot of people. And so spam has become a very, well, spam and phishing have both become very lucrative for organized crime and for criminals who want to make a quick buck. As time has progressed, the phishing messages have become more and more targeted to the point that they will do research about the organization, kind of understand how you communicate, what is the industry that you're in, so that they can craft a message that looks more and more relevant. Uh, One of the things that I see very frequently, and I've even had to educate my employees about, is that we use a voiceover internet phones. So VoIP, nobody actually has a real phone on their desk. All of the phone calls come in through the computer. And if you don't answer the phone, then you get an email with an attachment that is a voice message, which really increases the effectiveness of our interactions with the phones. It makes things much more convenient. But if somebody happens to send a message that says, hey, you missed a call and you have a voicemail and it's crafted to look similar enough, it is possible that somebody would actually click on an attachment Now, it's not just a link, and then that attachment could have a malicious payload. And the best countermeasure for this is just training. You know, the more people are aware of what things should look like versus what things could look like that are close, but not actually the right format, the right formatting, the right header, the right logo, or even just the ability to look at the link that's in the message and make sure that you look a little deeper and make sure that it's actually going where it says it's going to go. All of those are going to be things that help you from a practice perspective avoid the negative impact or the negative consequence of phishing messages. And then for the organizations that have the budget, 
there's always a tool that is going to help with that. So you have things like Proofpoint, you have solutions like SolarWinds that you can purchase from a vendor, from a consultant, from a third-party organization, where they actually install those tools in line on your mail server. And they'll do a lot of the work for you, which drastically reduces the number of malicious emails that would actually get to your users on their mobile device or on their computers. I think I'm safe to say that most people are familiar with Outlook or Office 365. So are there things that we can do in the settings of that program to help protect us? One thing that would be constructive is to talk to the IT team or your email administrator within your organization and just ask them to turn on the feature in Office 365. And I believe this also works for the G Suite for those organizations that are using Google. But you basically just get a message at the top that says this message came from outside the organization. For the use case that you provided where they're pretending to be you, if the header at the top says this message originated outside the organization, well, they know it didn't come from you because if it came from an internal employee, it wouldn't have had that message. Um, What some people are finding are that users are getting desensitized to that message because they're used to seeing it. So the additional practice that I would recommend is that the IT teams that are managing this feature, you know, periodically change the color. You know, maybe sometimes it's white text inside of a bold background, you know, maybe change it from blue to red to yellow to hot pink to lime green so that the message continues to stand out. But ultimately, you want to draw the attention to your users the difference between something that came from an internal corporate employee and something that came from an external employee. And that's really going to cut down on messages that appear to be from the CEO and tells the CFO to wire a million dollars to the Cayman Islands. Well, that's not really legitimate if that message came from outside the organization. A friend of mine about a year ago Uh, was trying to access his information, and he was a victim of a ransomware attack. And he was not prepared for it. And since that time, uh, we've tried to do some things because his story really scared me. And I'm sure you've been involved with other people that that have suffered ransomware attacks. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and then what we need to know about it and what we should do about it? Sure. So ransomware very often ties into the conversation that we had about phishing. And so there are statistics from multiple organizations, but on average, about 85% of your ransomware attacks start with a phishing email and somebody clicks on a link or there's some kind of um, payload or something that executes when you open the message and interact with it. And so You know, the conversation that we had about email security is a good start to reducing the likelihood that you're going to face the impact of ransomware. And then the other part of the equation is going to be preparation. You know, we talked about water treatment and you're preparing things in advance. We talked about the alarms that we had when I did chemical weapons that notified you in advance. Any early warning system that you have that is going to identify that ransomware is happening is going to increase your capability to contain it so that it doesn't take over the entire organization. Um, At a technical level, uh, what many companies should do is think about network segmentation so that you are isolating different things on the network. And so that something that happens in one area does not automatically affect other parts of the organization. For people who store, process, or transmit credit cards, they're often familiar with this because of PCI compliance because the payment card industry that includes MasterCard, Visa, Discover, American Express, from a security and compliance perspective, they require that anything relating to credit cards should be isolated from other things in your business operations. If you take that same concept and then apply it to your entire organization, the SCADA and ICS components of the organization should be on a different segment or portion of the network compared to your back office systems, compared to your servers if you have servers in the environment, compared to the workstations that are in the environment. And the more you separate things, the more you can reduce the impact of ransomware when it occurs. And then you allow your response teams, whether it's corporate employees or a third-party company that you selected to work with, now the response team can focus on a specific area while things continue to operate in other network segments that weren't affected by the ransomware. 
Another thing that contributes to this equation is just having good backups. What tends to happen, and I see this when I have my consulting hat on, is that a lot of organizations have no idea where their data is. They have no idea what the value of that data is, and there's no formal standard for classifying data, for backing data up, for testing the backups to make sure that you can restore them. You know, that standard business continuity planning is going to be very valuable when it comes to ransomware, because sometimes, even if you pay the ransom, the key that they give you to get all of your data back doesn't work. And so now you've paid the ransom and you still can't get your data back. The countermeasure for that is just to have good procedures for backups, have the capability to restore your information. And that's going to expedite the process for recovering systems and services and getting back online. And then the network segmentation is hopefully going to reduce the impact of the ransomware altogether because it would be much easier to address, you know, maybe 5, 10, 15 systems being affected instead of 100% of my environment being affected. And the example that I gave in the beginning, uh, my friend did pay. They found it was easier just to pay for the ransomware. And and for those of you listening that aren't familiar with that, uh, there was something installed on his computer. He went to access his data, and and, and it didn't give him the right to do it. It said, you have to contact these people and pay them money in order to get access to this file. So he figured the easiest thing was just to deal with it. They didn't ask for a tremendous amount of money considering uh, the project that was being held up because of him not being able to get to the file. So he paid it. He was able to access the file, but then months later, the same thing happened. What should he have done? If we look at it from an ethical perspective, and I have this conversation with attorneys and some of my security executives who are colleagues and friends of mine, From an ethical perspective, it's not recommended that you pay the ransom because most of these ransom payments are going to organize crime. So by paying the ransom, you're just facilitating more crime and you're increasing capability of the organization that took the ransom from you to now do this to other people. Uh, If you have good backups and you have good business continuity planning, that would have been a better alternative because the money that your friend spent on the ransom would have been spent on the recovery efforts to restore their operations. And there would have been a higher degree of confidence that everything is just working like it's supposed to work. Um, A nuance for backup and recovery is that part of the process should be to consider what was the source of the ransomware so that when you do restore your capabilities, you're not restoring back to the same state that allowed the ransomware to occur. You want to actually improve your practices so that your restoration also adds some new measure of security control that prevents the ransom from happening again. It sounds in the use case that you provided that the ransom was paid, but there was no change in the practices. And so theoretically, there's nothing that prevents them from getting a ransom letter every quarter, every six months. And now this organization becomes part of the economic drivers of the criminal organization that keeps attacking them. You've mentioned backup several times. What are some procedures that we should be using in our companies around backup? And and I'll ask this, what is the minimum that we should be doing? And then what's the most extravagant we can even look at? What I would recommend to any business is to take the time to do a business impact analysis. Uh, One of the things that my company does on the consulting side, because my company does consulting and education, on the consulting side, we advocate that people take the time to do a business impact analysis and really understand how does the business operate, what technology does it depend on to operate, and what information is necessary for the company to operate. And that's going to boil down to your mission essential functions. What some companies tend to do, and this is much more prevalent in small and medium businesses, is that they back up everything. And then that starts to eat into their capabilities because you backed up so much data that now you have to pay for extra storage. The process for recovering that data is extremely slow. In an ideal sense, if you've done the business impact analysis, then you can say that this bucket of data, which is some percent of the whole, is what's really important. This is what we're going to back up. This is what we're going to test regularly. This is what's 
what we are going to make sure that we have the capability to restore. If there is a power outage, if there's a ransomware attack, if the building collapses and we need to restore it, the practice that I'm talking about is not exclusive to security, but it's really going to provide the capability for any organization to continue their operations after any type of disruption. And realistically, you know, ransomware is one type of business disruption. The beauty of the business impact analysis and having good contingency planning is that regardless of the disruption, you have identified your mission essential functions and you have identified capabilities to make sure that you can restore those functions as quickly as possible. The other answer to your question is that once you identify your mission essential functions, now you can start to think, how much storage do I need? You know, do I have a backup server within my organization? Do I put it in the cloud? There's nothing wrong with the cloud, although some people will argue that it's very scary. The important thing related to the cloud, especially if you're using it as a backup solution, is that you are very intentional about access control. Not everybody needs to have access to your backup data. And then you also need to make sure that whatever controls you have in place in production also exists in the backup environment because data is just data as far as computer systems are concerned. And you have to make sure that you protect that data everywhere that it exists. If you get that right, now what you have is you're protecting all the data while you're using it in production. Then you're protecting the data in whatever backup location is appropriate for the organization. And when you need to restore the data, you have confidence that it is the right data. You know, we haven't violated integrity. It's going to support your operations, and then you just restore it and keep moving. And once you get into that good rhythm and those good practices, you should be able to restore things within a timely manner so that your core operations don't realize a significant impact. I can't say there's no impact at all, but the objective is to make the impact as small and as manageable as possible. So for somebody listening today and they say, that business impact analysis sounds like something that I've never thought about before, but I need to look into this. What advice do you have for them? Um, there's two approaches. They can hire an expert. And so obviously my opinion is biased because we are those experts. <laughs> or they can uh, just read best practices. There is a um, document from NIST. And NIST is not the only source of wisdom related to cybersecurity, but for those people who are in the United States and even people globally, you know, the American tax dollars have um, produced a great set of documents that cover everything that you ever wanted to do from a security perspective. And so if my intention as a small business owner, as a medium business owner, was to develop my own business continuity plan, then NIST special publication 800-34 is going to at least give the overarching guidance. And even if you seek help from experts, you now use that NIST document to frame and guide your expectations for what they're going to produce. And so it tells you, you know, how do you do the business impact analysis at a high level? The 800-34 tells you how to start to build your contingency planning. And then if you need help from an expert, now you're not allowing the expert to tell you everything. You've at least developed a basic level of knowledge about what should be produced, what I need to consider, what's the information that I need to start gathering so that the consulting fee is reasonable and you have um, some level of confidence that what you get from the consultant that you hire is actually going to be valid and relevant to meet your needs. Well, Keon, you've provided me with that document for contingency planning, so we'll get that on the show notes page. So Nation, if you want to download that for absolutely free, you can go to the show notes page and you can do that. Uh, and Keon, thank you for providing that. Sure. The objective is to make sure that everybody has as many resources as possible without having to pay for them. If you go to csrc.nist.gov, there's actually an entire catalog of security standards that you can look at. Um, what we'll do in the show notes is make sure that you have things that address what we're talking about specifically. But for people who are curious, there are hundreds of documents that talk about hundreds of security topics and all of those are freely available. Well, thank you for that. I want to ask you one question and then I want to shift over where we can really help a lot of people in the Scaling Up Nation, which I think we've done on this episode. Uh, but I want to describe the systems that we have 
in almost every single one of our accounts where there is a microprocessor controller hanging there on the wall, it's feeding our program, and we have access either into the internet, and sometimes it's through a, a wireless card where we're, it has its own cellular connection. That we probably have less to worry about, but sometimes it goes into the actual company's internet where it resides. What are some things that we should be doing to protect not only our customers, but also ourselves? Part of the answer is addressed by our conversation previously about network segmentation. I think another part of the answer is just access control. You know, if you very strictly control access to the device and control access between the device and the network components that it's communicating on, combining that with good network segmentation, maybe adding some encryption on top of that if you have the capability. Um, not all of your industrial control system solutions are going to support encryption, but network isolation is going to be something great that you can do at a corporate level. Um, when you get to the end users, making sure that only the right users are interacting with those components is also going to be very important. And that's going to be valuable as a corporate practice. It's also going to be valuable for your employees to get into that habit of only allowing the right person to touch the right things. And so at home, my children shouldn't touch my work computer. At work, I shouldn't allow other people to use my credentials to do things. And as that becomes part of the ecosystem, now security rises to the same level as safety does in a manufacturing or a SCADA environment where, you know, for my manufacturing clients, we have a safety briefing about ladders or something related to safety before I even open my mouth to talk about cybersecurity. I think it would be valuable for people to start to adopt um, the same ideas where, you know, there's a cybersecurity minute and people are constantly reinforcing good practices and good behavior because the practices and the behavior are going to help reduce your risk drastically. You've mentioned kids a couple of times, and I just can see that somebody's on a tablet, uh, a young person, and they just want to open something and see what it is, and we don't know what that's going to do to allow somebody access to our information. So what can we do at home to protect ourselves? The best advice that I can give uh, home users, especially if they are taking corporate work home, is to have two separate networks. Um, in my house, for example, I actually have three separate networks. And so I have one network for all of my IoT devices, so my smart TV, my smart home devices. Um, my wife is thinking about getting a smart refrigerator, but it makes me very nervous because I think that's going to be the uh, root of a lot of problems. But all <laughs> of those smart home devices are on their own network that is isolated from the computing devices. Um, because we do homeschool, you know, I have a lot of children that are always on a computer. We have a homeschool network set up for my wife and my children to be on a network that is separate from the third network, which is only for corporate activities. Um, you know, we're blessed to be able to do work from home. Sometimes people come to the house to conduct business, but any business is done is on a completely separate network that is isolated from the smart home devices, that is also isolated from the personal and homeschool devices. But that separation now prevents, you know, somebody doing something on one of the personal devices from affecting any of the devices on the corporate network because everybody is in their own isolated swim lane. It should be the same thing that people are doing in a corporate environment where I would not allow guests who come to the office to connect to the corporate network. We have a guest network for that. So we're just taking the same principles that you would apply in a corporate environment and applying them to a home environment. You mentioned password sharing earlier. And in a corporate environment, in a home environment, you have access to something and you want somebody else to do something for you. So most people just say, hey, here's my login credentials. Go ahead and do that for me. What should we be doing? So the Super Bowl was interesting because most of the commercials were horrible or I'm just too old to understand them. <laughs> but one of the um, <laughs> one of the best commercials in the Super Bowl, if you reflect back to, you know, the catalog of commercials that were available, is I think um, this year for the 2020 Super Bowl, this was the first time you had a commercial where they the company paid six million dollars and the company was a password safe. 
And so I think it's the beginning of something great in terms of just increasing the awareness of the value of password safes. Um, I like LastPass. They have a free version, but LastPass isn't the only solution. Um, the company that did the Super Bowl commercial, I tip my hat to Dashlane for investing what it takes to have a Super Bowl commercial to raise awareness about the value of password safes. But the great thing about a password safe, regardless of the company that you use, all of them have the same functionality where the password safe is going to have a database of your usernames and passwords, and it is going to make sure that you do not use the same password for more than one item. What that does is it prevents a situation whereby what you tend to see with a lot of people, and this is corporate users and home users, is they will use the same password to log into Facebook, Twitter, their bank account, and their desk at their computer because it's something that they have memorized. But if any one of those items gets compromised, now the people who broke into your Facebook account can log into your bank account because your username is your email and you're using the same password across multiple services. The password safe is going to stop you from doing that. It's going to warn you when you use the same password for multiple things. And the great thing about modern password safes, regardless of the solution that you choose, is they will just generate a random password and then know what password goes to what accounts. And my default configuration now is that I have a random 25-character password for everything that I log into. And the only password that I need to remember is the password for the password safe. Then technology takes over logs me in. And if I need to share a password, for example, um, my wife needs to know where the life insurance is in case something happens to me. That password is in my name, but through the password safe, my wife has an account also, and I can share that password with her. She never sees the password, but she can log in to the life insurance account if she ever needs it. Keon, we have covered a lot of ground today. I think we've educated a lot of people. And not only that, we've given them some handles that they can actually start improving what they're doing. But I want to ask you, if somebody just tuned in right now, what's the one thing you want them to get from this discussion? Uh, if I boiled it down to one thing, it'd be be careful out there and you don't have to click on every link. You know, very often your security compromises are really just playing on human curiosity. You know, people click on links because they got a message that looked interesting. You know, back in the day when people used to send e-cards, that was a great tool to get people to click on a fake message. And then you have horrible things happen to your computers. And the don't click on everything applies to home users. It applies to consultants and contractors. It applies to corporate users. Uh, if we extend this into just the corporate environment, kind of thinking about the audience and we're dealing with, you know, people that work in industrial environments, I highly recommend that everybody who works in an industrial control systems or SCADA environment, you know, takes the time to at least look at NIST Special Publication 800-82. It is a guide to industrial control system security, and it would be a great just user awareness tool to make sure that all the people who are working in the facility, whether they touch a computer daily or they touch a computer infrequently, kind of understand how everything is put together, how you secure the environment, how you keep IT secure and you keep your operations technology secure. Because all of these things, like we do with safety in an ICS environment, that awareness of cybersecurity practices and how things should be is going to make sure that things are how they should be much more often and everybody can contribute to success. And that was another document that you shared with us. So we'll make sure that's available on our show notes page as well. Well, let's shift gears one more time because now I have some lightning round questions for you if you are ready. I'm ready. So now you can go back in time and you can visit your former self on your first day as a cybersecurity expert. What advice would you give yourself? Um, if I went back and I saw my old self, I would encourage myself to dig into business practices sooner than I did. It took me five years after I started as a cybersecurity expert to even think about getting a business degree. And the uh, business degree is the best thing that I've done professionally because everybody who receives everything that I do is a business person and my communication with them improved drastically once I explored it at an academic level and then started just doing it in practice. What are the last few books that you've read? 
Uh, my favorite books right now, and I've read them all recently. Uh, number one, this is Marketing from Seth Godin. I'm a huge fan of Seth. Uh, his book, Lynchpin, actually helps me become an executive. And the wisdom that I got from that opened my first opportunity into security leadership. Uh, the second book, I just got it. I just cracked it open. But it is awesome so far and is securing DevOps. Uh, that's not going to be exciting for most people. But doing security in the cloud is where everything is going. And so this has been a great read to understand at a technical and at a business level how to secure everything when you take it out of your corporate environment and put everything on the Internet. And then my third favorite book right now is just Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. Um, when Sproul passed away. It was kind of a sad thing, but I spend a lot of my personal time in Christian ministry, and that book um, kind of puts things very simply and is easy to understand for everybody, regardless of what their faith background is. Now, eventually, Hollywood is going to find out about Keon Williams, and they're going to make a movie. Who plays you? That's hard to say. Um, it depends on how old I am when they play me. When I was in the Army, I was a strapping young gentleman, 235 pounds with 6% body fat. So maybe The Rock, even though he and I are close <laughs> to the same age. Um, you know, if it's the older me, it, it'd be hard to say. You know, somebody who is a little more pudgy, but is wise. Um, I'd, I'd leave it to Hollywood to choose the best actor. Fair enough. And then my last question, you now have the ability to speak with anyone throughout history. Who would it be with and why? Uh, if I could talk to anybody throughout history, I would love to talk to Abraham Lincoln. Um, I say that kind of given the political climate in the United States today. Things are not as drastic now as they were back then, but it would really be interesting to talk to the president of the United States in the midst of a civil war that was tearing the country apart. I think that would really put things into perspective and add good context for, you know, what is really social upheaval in the U.S. and in a lot of other countries around the world right now. Well, Keon, I want to thank you for coming on Scaling Up H2O and really educating the nation on what we should be doing about some of these cyber threats. It was, it was my pleasure. This was a great conversation. I am very happy to share this conversation with a new audience, and hopefully it had an impact and more of our water professionals are going to uh, take cybersecurity on as a new learning challenge. When I was speaking with Keon, I made a list of things that I needed to do both at home and here at the office. Now, something I have that you might not have is I have a cyber security insurance policy here at our company. And the reason I do that is because, folks, I can put a line item in our budget to account for insurance. I cannot put a line item in the budget to account for what if something like that were to happen. How would I get my information back? How would I help make my customer whole? How would I do better practices to make sure that when we did get the information back, it wouldn't happen again? It's always been my philosophy that we can budget for insurance but we can't budget for the unknown, making insurance something that I always want to look for because it's easy to put that in the line item. With the policy that we have, we actually get a team of experts that help us with best practices. They review what we're doing. We're able to call, talk to a real person, ask them questions, they give us help. So I'm not here trying to sell you an insurance policy, but I want you to know that if you're a business owner, there are policies like that out there. And folks, we are good water treaters. We should not be versed in all of this technological stuff that we have to do to protect ourselves and our company from getting cyber hacked we should be partnering with someone who helps us do that. So that's one tool that's available out there. Also, there were so many tools that Keon gave us that we can start using. He mentioned a publication that is on our show notes page, so you can download that. That was a great tool for us to use here at the company. 
But I have to tell you, after talking with Keon, after meeting with people that hold our insurance policy, I went home and I set up our routers differently. I changed the passwords. I made them so someone could not sit in the driveway or out to the outskirts of where our Wi-Fi reaches, put a randomizer on our network, and within a couple of seconds, find a simple password. So I made it a lot more complex. I added some security to the Wi-Fi, and I made sure that everybody that was logging on to the Wi-Fi understood what needed to be opened, what needed not to be opened, and when in doubt, we just simply do not open it. I know a lot of times we have that fear of getting left behind or left out or missing out. So with that, if somebody did send you an email and it looked bogus, what I would do is I would open up a separate email and ask that person, is this something that you are really sending me? Or folks, let's face it, if you delete it and it was important, they're probably going to contact you through another means. So don't click anything that you don't know is reliable. And there's so much software out there Microsoft 365 is a platform I know a lot of us are using. There are a lot of security precautions already programmed in there. So if you can use some of the things that are already available to you, you can minimize your risk. But let's face it, there's always going to be a risk out there. So the best thing you can do to protect yourself is to be armed with better knowledge. And that is exactly what Keon's mission was today, to give us some more information so we can make better decisions when it comes to cybersecurity. And I just have to say, as one final point, it really aggravates me that there are people out there looking for ways to cause trouble for the rest of us. So get a real job, you're smart, you're able to, to crack all these codes. Well, folks, there is an honest job for you to do that out there. So I'm speaking to all the criminals out there, stop making our lives even worse when we're having to deal with the pandemic and all the things that have to come with that. Just, just stop it. I don't know if that does any good, but I feel better saying it. So if you have any questions about any of the tools, any of the tips, resources that Keon mentioned, again, we're going to have all those on our show notes page. And I hope that today everybody learned at least one thing that they could do to protect themselves. Well, next week is a special Halloween episode. I'm going to be doing something a little bit different. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think about it? I, I'm trying something new. I'm excited about it. I'm also a little nervous about it. So again, you'll find out about all that stuff next Friday. As always, I look forward to bringing you a new episode each and every Friday, something that you can count on. In the meantime, please stay safe out there. Of course, now staying safe not only means protecting ourselves, the ones we love, and now we got to look at keeping our computers safe and our data safe. But if we know all that, we can do it. In the meantime, stay safe out there, and I will see you next week. Have a great week, folks. Folks, you've heard me talk about the Rising Tide Mastermind and the success that all the people that are members of the Rising Tide Mastermind are enjoying. But I know you're wondering, what are the reasons that people join? So here is Michelle Farmery to tell you why she joined.
Michelle, thank you so much for sharing with the Scaling Up Nation why you joined the Rising Tide Mastermind and what you get out of the Rising Tide Mastermind. Folks, let's face it, we all wear so many hats. Being a water treater is not an easy job, but when you can talk with other water treaters about issues you're having, both in business and in personal, you are able to get to the next level faster. One of the things that we do in the Rising Tide Mastermind is we urge each other to take the next step. And then we hold each other accountable to make sure we're doing the right things in order to get there. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind to find out more about the Rising Tide Mastermind and to see if this is a group that's right for you. I urge you to find a group of peers that will make sure you are taking the right steps to get to the next level.